the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to Jason Brown. Jason is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and movement coach. He specializes in working with what can be considered recreational Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu players. Now, not only, as I noted, is Jason a BJJ practitioner himself, he's been doing Jiu-Jitsu since 1996. His philosophy is to train his students in the same way that he trains in order to get the most out of their bodies, their training, and their time. In this episode, we discuss the art of physical preparation, approaching your training from a play-based approach, and skill development. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. All right, Jason, here's my first question for you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? So I was listening to your podcast yesterday, sir, while I was walking the dogs, and I thought about that question quite deeply. And it's something that I struggle with, Coach, because I have a problem with the word self-reliant and also this word autonomous, because I believe it's really hard for people to be one, self-reliant, and two, autonomous. Autonomy is this big discussion now in the training world. We create this autonomous movement. You be autonomous. I think it's really hard to be. I don't. I think it's. I quite honestly, I think it's impossible to be. I mean, if you if you use the definition autonomous, free from outside influences, right? I think it's incredibly hard or not impossible uh, to be autonomous, self reliant. And this is something that uh, I don't know if you saw my Instagram post this week. I brought up a point about my father. My father was a skilled mason and a skilled contractor. And he was pretty much self-reliant because this gentleman could do whatever he wanted with his own hands, with his own skills. And unfortunately, part of it is my fault, sir, that I didn't search out that self-reliance from my father and nor did he pass it on. So I think there's a blend between those. I know many uh, on many of, uh, of your other episodes, you said it's not that you don't reach out for help because that is not, you know, it's that we, we rely more on ourselves and we exhaust our own possibilities first before we reach out for help. That's the way I view self-reliance. It's not that we don't ask our neighbor for help, our brothers for help, our coaches and our mentors for help, but we explore things on our own and we try to develop those skills on our own before approaching other experts in the field, if that makes sense. It's a, it's a great question, sir, because it is something that I struggle with. Am I, can I ever be self-reliant? I mean, Jesus, I have 12 books on gardening, <laughs> right? I need to find these gardening books so I can be self-reliant, but then I'm relying on those authors and those other experts. So 
Yeah, I think in a general sense, you've hit the nail on the head. The way that I look at it is exactly as you defined it, is that you want to try as best as you can achieve the outcome that you've set for yourself by yourself, right? Because I think too many times what people tend to do is they're always looking for the answers outside of themselves and hoping that then that in of itself will answer the question without wanting or willing to or being brave enough to do the work. So an example of that would be many people read self-help books. Most people who read self-help books will read another self-help book. And if you if you ask them, what have you actually achieved through reading the 20 self-help books other than reading another one, most people will say, I've achieved nothing. And I think that's part of the problem is that there is an assumption that you can achieve success by simply getting the answer without actually doing the work. And it's only through doing the work that you recognize if the answer is correct or not. I mean, we are both, in a similar sense, we're both martial artists, we both teach. So we understand this, right? I mean, you'll, you'll be able to um, attest to this. People want the shortcut, right? Especially when people want to teach martial arts, they don't actually want to put the time and the effort. They will go to, they'll spend the money, even if it's three times more than say, my program or your program, to get the certificate in the weekend, you know, just a weekend of training, but won't actually go down the road of actually doing something that's going to require diligence, practice, blood, sweat, and tears, right? So they want the quick answers. They want the cookie cutter answers. Like, okay, I don't want to figure out how to teach my class. I don't want to figure out how to be an artist. Just give me the class setup. Just tell me what to do you know, A, B, and C, and D, and that's it, right? And so self-reliance is part of recognizing that the only way that you can embody true answers is through your own experience, through testing it. And then at the other, at the other side of it is, is that you can't be of help to anybody in your community if you are not willing to do the inner work yourself. So part of self-reliance is doing that inner work so that you can be a benefit to everybody else around you. Because if you are falling apart and crumbling and your entire life is in disarray, well, how are you going to serve anybody else? You have to get your own house in order first before you can start helping anybody else around you. Yes, it's that whole oxygen uh, mask analogy, right? Exactly that, right? You know, you put your own yeah. on first before you put anybody else's on, otherwise you're useless to everybody else. And yes. it's exactly as you said, right? I mean, of course, there's a, there's a, a bit of a, a tension there when I ask people that question because they think what, it say, what I'm suggesting is self-reliance is this kind of narcissistic, all about you kind of attitude. And the way that I look at it is could, that couldn't be further than from the truth. It's, it's the complete opposite, actually. Yes. It's a great question. And I'm glad you put this project together because it, it's a... Uh... You know, it's it's very valuable to get your perspective on this as well as all of the other people on your show. So mm, no, sure. So let's jump into some of the things we will we say we'll talk about. One of the things we wanted to talk about is the art of physical preparation. First of all, what what do you even mean by that, right? And why is that even important? The art of physical preparation. That's a great question, and I think we have really done a disservice to our our populations and our youths because we have started to take that physical preparation. And again, this goes back to self reliance, sir. Right? When I think of my father and I think about self reliance, he was physically prepared. He physically prepared himself through the use of his hands. He could feed his family and my mother, to be honest. She could feed her family through the use of her physicality. 
And this is the art of physical preparation. If we're talking about athletics, I think one of the best things that we can do, and you spoke about this, one of the first introductions I had to your work, sir, was a more playful approach to the art of physical preparation. And I think one thing that we have done a great disservice to is we've made everything very militaristic and very stringent. And we talk about discipline and we talk about, you know, the grind and everything. And you and I both know that if we keep the game playful, people will absorb the fruits of our work and the fruits of their own labor much more if they enjoy the process and if they, they enjoy the play of the game. I think we've just, uh, I think we've, I don't know where this has come from, but I think we've done a great disservice to our youth in general, but also to adults. I mean, I, I work with many adults and this is one reason why I still play jujitsu. And I use that verb purposely, play jujitsu, because uh, it's adult roughhousing, right? It's adult roughhousing. We get together with one another and we don't beat one another up. We roughhouse and we play and we need that escape. We need that playful uh relationship with with other people so we can absorb the lessons that jujitsu teaches us, but also that we can enjoy the relationships as well. Imagine if we went in there and beat the shit out of one another every lesson. We would last a, a week. There are places like that, right? Unfortunately, there are places like that where that is the case. And I mean, you know, I'm part, I can say that I was part of the problem at one point coming up in my early days. I just thought that that was the only way to do it, right? Because that's what I saw around me. So you went in, you gave it 100 miles an hour, yes. full, full bore, you know, gave everything. You didn't, you know, you didn't care about your safety or anything else. And you just went at it full contact. And there was this perception in everybody's mind that that's the way that you're going to get better. And you, of course you gain something from that experience, but you don't gain what you think you're really going to gain. And that part of learning about yourself and overcoming your inner demons and your, you know, the skeletons in your closet still remain. Oftentimes those kind of hyper-competitive experiences will make those those inner demons even worse, right? They'll bring them out even more. They, it's, it's actually their, it's their food, it's their sustenance, it's what they, they, what they feed on, right? So I had, to, I had to come a long way to figure out that there was another way to do it, but it's not about me and how I got there because that's part of my, my backstory. But I think what I wanna kind of just explore with you is, okay, when we talk about phys physical preparation, what, what are we actually talking about? What, what would be the bare minimum of physical preparation that somebody would have to kind of embody? Why, and why would that be important to do that? I think we need to go back to extreme basics. And if you, if you say, what, what is the simplest, most basic thing that we as humans can start doing more of? It would be, and it sounds incredibly simple and, and, naive, but it would be walking. Mm. And it would be using our own body as a means of transportation. That is one thing that uh, I can't believe it. I live two blocks away from our elementary school. And we have families that drive their children to the elementary school. Now, granted, there has never been a case of stranger danger ever. Stranger danger in the US is actually down. It's a small, cool neighborhood where everybody looks out for one another, but these parents still drive their children to school, two blocks. They don't, it's, it's incredible. And this is going to sound like a, I'll sound like a jerk, but the parents are overweight. 
and the children are overweight. And uh, I think if we just let our kids ride our bike, ride their bikes more, we let them walk more. We 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 just have to go back to those very simple basics of using our own bodies as a means of transportation, bicycle, walking. You know. Yeah, you know, just that you were saying that, I, like as as we jumped on the call, I said I've just come back from London, so I spent uh, six six nights in London. Um, pretty much walked London flat. I'm not going to lie, my feet were killing me, right? But it became so, so important to me to, to, to that realization of like just being able to experience a sense of place, how that is very different when you are walking, you know, if you um, compared to say, for example, if you're driving, it's just not the same experience. Yeah, what, what you see, what you sense, what you feel, what you notice, is very different. All of the senses are engaged when we walk, all of them. You hear the birds, you smell the scents, you smell the little cafe that you're walking by and the bread. You hear the chatter of the other individuals alongside you. You feel the breeze, right? I have three boys and I, th I think I do a pretty good job of educating them on the walking and the, the activities. And uh, you know, I live in Pennsylvania. When they walk outside, they know when it's gonna rain because I expose them to that information. Oh, do you feel this? Do you feel the humidity? Do you feel the parameter change? They know now. And it's like, it's sort of touching <laughs> to be as a father, like, ah, oh, you're figuring this stuff out. It's pretty cool. Yeah, but just even those lessons that you are imparting to your, to your sons, I did the same thing, which makes me feel very confident that irrespective of where they find themselves in the world, they're going to be able to be self-reliant and will be able to navigate their, yeah, navigate their terrain, right? And will have that sense of connectedness to the natural world that many people now no longer have. And that I think is crucial. I, again, you know, just talking from a health perspective, I was saying this to, to a previous guest. One of the biggest and most profound shifts for my health and my well-being was reconnecting fully with nature. Now, it's not that I haven't done that over the years because I have, but with COVID and being in lockdown on the Isle of Man, which is a really beautiful place to be you know, in lockdown, so no complaints there, I was able to really immerse myself in the natural world. And just that deepening of that connection is in a way coming home. It's a sense of homecoming. It, it, you know, a lot of people... I have this conversation with them and they feel like something is missing in their life, but they can't put their finger on it. And I keep saying to them is that the more you kind of move into the modern world and what the modern world says is going to be good for you, the less happy you're going to be. And that's also, that's also the other problem that I see. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this is that I see so much of the methodologies or we talked about self-help or whatever that may be the strategies to be more happy and especially the books around it and the courses are all situated within becoming happier, healthier, and living a more fulfilled life within the very system that is causing the problems to begin with, rather than saying, actually, you know what, maybe the real answer is, is not to actually try to be happy within the system and find yeah. a new way to experience life. What do you think of that? I agree completely. Who's what? What is that? You'll know, Coach. More you'll you'll. I have a feeling you'll be able to quote it exactly. That Krishnamurti quote. Oh, now you're putting me on the spot. It's like it's no. What is it? It's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. Yes, it's something like that. That may not be. And I recently picked up a book uh, called The Healthy Deviant, and it's literally 
if we want to be healthy and happy in today's world, we have to do exactly 180 degrees of what we're being told to do, right? We really do. So what are you doing in your work that speaks to that? I'm trying, but it is a tough sell to get uh, to, to, to sell the things that I think people, going back to one of the first things that we spoke about today, people want those cookie cutter answers. They want that 27 workouts for $27, as opposed to here's what you need to do. You need to take a walk in nature, three miles minimum every day. You need to go without your headphones. You need to go without your tech. You just need to go and see the birds. Some of the students that I worked with, we just, your homework for that week was to find something red, whether it was a red bird or a red flower, right? The art of noticing, that type of thing. That's the work that I'm really inspired by recently is trying to get people to spend more time in nature, right? So it's something that I call the deep art. And the deep art is deep practice, deep play, deep nature, and finally deep rest. And I try to work with those four elements when I work with individuals. And those elements can switch. I tend to put deep play above deep uh, practice. But the deep rest, we don't rest well anymore. People think rest is looking at their iPhones while they're on the hammock. No, it's actually put the iPhone down and absorb the rest, right? Or the deep nature, we go in and we, we fill our ears with uh, the music while we should be listening to the sounds that are around us. So, But it's a tough sell, sir. And I'm sure you, you're, you're well aware of that also. People want you know, here's your next burpee workout. <laughs> what it, burpees would probably be the last thing that we absolutely need as a species to make us our uh, ourselves healthy and happy, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, again, it is a total tough sell. It's so difficult not to kind of go down that that road, right? Especially when you have to make a living like everybody else. And I, you know, I, I keep talking about this over and over. We we we're not free. We we're literally born into servitude. You know, if I'm not if I'm not paying my bills, if I'm not paying my tax, if I'm not doing the things I need to do, I'm going to find myself out on the street, and there's going to be nobody there coming to help me. And so the difficult part is staying true to what you believe, true to, true to how you live, even though many people around you are not going to see that. And in actual fact, society says the complete opposite. I do think, though, I do think that there is slowly a shift in consciousness, a shift in what people are now looking for than maybe what they were looking for before. And I think part of that is because people have realized that all of what the modern world had promised them when they were young and growing up or what was promised to their parents is not coming to fruition. And as we look around, things are a lot worse and are getting worse and not getting better. You know, technology was supposed to be the answer for everything. And although we're getting more technology every year, things are actually not getting better for the average person. Yeah, it was they were supposed to be labor saving devices, right? Oh, now that I have this Excel sheet, I should only work three hours a day. My poor wife, she's excellent at Excel sheets. She doesn't work three hours per day. She works 12 hour days. Because the technology just amplifies the work and adds to it, unfortunately. But they were originally designed to be like, uh, you know, today's the work week, work day will be one hour, three hours long because of all this new technology, right? So I guess one way to kind of get around this in, in some respect is to start thinking about simplifying your life. I mean, what is your perspective on that? How important is that? And are you doing anything in respect to that? 
and with your clients as well? Yes, I am. So that's a great question. I think, and I, I agree with you completely, and I'm noticing this a lot with my young nephews. And also you can see this globally, I think, at least in the US. I'm not sure if the work situation is, is uh, the same everywhere. But we have a lot of people that are choosing not to go back to work, right? And it's exactly what you said, sir. They sort of saw the light. This employer didn't care about me, right? And they're just simply not going back because they see that dead end job. They see that dead end, you know, they see no, you know, love in what they're doing. So I think that's a, I think you can see that at least in the US, I'm not sure if it's the, the same situation everywhere, but we are, we have a shortage of every worker because kids do not want to go back. But how am I simplifying? That's a great question. So my travel, I have reduced my travel quite a bit and I'm really enjoying, I mean, before COVID, I would be on the road. I had 48 workshops, 48 workshops planned. I was going to be gone 48 weekends that year. And I missed a lot of soccer games or football games. You probably say football, right? Yeah, football games. I missed a lot of baseball games and I'm really enjoying just being at home. I'm not making as much money but I'm making more of an impact locally with people that I'm working with. I'm a much better father. I'm a much better caregiver because I'm with my children much more and I can lead them much more. In terms of simplicity, uh, I garden more, try to try to do more with a, in my own little backyard, something that I call the strength garden and uh, take my bike everywhere, walk everywhere, try not to add any complications where that's not necessary. So I built a, I had a gym in, in my neighborhood and uh, closed it down and I brought all the equipment into my backyard. I dug these three foot footers, put concrete in. I put up a 12 foot rogue uh, fitness rack. So we have pull up bars, monkey bars, uh, gymnastics rings, all the plates you could want, all the weights that you could want, all the kettlebells. Uh, and then I got a shed, a 200 square foot shed that actually has mat space. So I train, uh, train jujitsu in my backyard with my boys or select, uh, select athletes and clients. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I did that for a very long time, you know, before I moved from South Africa, uh, my, I had a studio at the house for over a decade and, you know, that there, there was a time when I had big, a big academy, right. At my height, I had close on 300 students. I was on the mat literally from five thirty in the morning until nine at night, day in and day out for over a decade. And, you know, just, you know, after a while, it's like, what the hell am I doing? You know what I mean? It's crazy. It's like you, my, my health is suffering because of this. And I mean, now, you know, as I reach 50 and I'm looking back, if I could go back, I would change a lot of things. My neck is all messed up. I've got lots of, you know, health issues from training, not incorrectly because I trained correctly. It's just, I did way too much. And when I should have taken time off, I didn't do that. So there's something to be said for, you know, just simplifying your life. And as you said, you know what I mean? At the end of the day, maybe you don't make as much money as you did, but you get to do the more important things. And that was the thing I loved about having the studio at my house is that I could really spend proper moments and time with my kids. Yeah. I'm very willing to make less money and have more freedom of time so I can do the things with my family and, and friends. Even the dogs. <laughs> exactly. You know, you were saying about you're not sure, if, you know, how the situation is, you know, outside of the U.S., 
this is this is interesting. So there was a study done in 2019. Uh, so that's not that long ago. This is just before COVID. And it was a study done nationwide in the United Kingdom. And they found that between the ages of 16 and 29, 89% of people said that they felt that their lives were meaningless. Horrible, right? That is truly horrible. So that's, you know that's what, uh, scary, yeah. I was on another podcast interview with a, a gentleman named Rafe Kelly. So we were speaking about that same thing. And uh, it's because we came to this conclusion that we have taken away everything of meaning from individuals, even these hands. We create nothing. I always use the example of, um, do you watch uh, Alone? Yeah. Episode, uh, season six, where the guy kills the badger with his uh, machete right? He gets reunited with his wife and he tells his wife, I killed him a, a badger or oh, Wolverine. It was a Wolverine. I killed a Wolverine with a machete and she slaps him on the chest. She goes, you are a wild man. Boom. And he lights up and he smiles and he's so happy that she's proud of him that he killed a Wolverine with his bare hands. And I always thought, imagine that guy and then compare. And this is going to sound like a, a jerk, but to somebody who sent emails all day, you come home from work and you're like, what'd you do today, honey? I sent emails, right? Now this guy's a warrior. He's feeding his family with a machete. He's attacking wolverines and, and moose and killing moose. And he just 3000 pounds of meat with his bare hands. What'd you do today? I made an Excel sheet. There's nothing, there's nothing to value. We've taken away all of the meaning because of, uh, I don't want to say, I, tech is a beautiful thing. You and I are speaking right now because of tech, but we have digitized absolutely every aspect of our lives that we don't have anything at the end of the day to say, I built this motorcycle. I built this wall. I made that candle, right? It's a very, it's a, it's a sad situation, sir. Well, I think that's the reason why our work is so important at this moment in time is that in our small way, we are, helping people find meaning. One of those, of course, is through the practice of martial arts and jujitsu is, is one way to achieve that because you actually get on the mat. Part of it is self-reliance. You have to be reliant on yourself in order to get through the session, but you also start to reconnect with people in a way and realize that you, you cannot succeed in the art without other people. And that connection is very important. So you start developing connection, real connection, which is missing these days, as you noted, that for the most part, everything is, connection is digital, which is in connection, right? It's just bits of information. It can never ever take the, 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 you know, the form of what it would be like to be in genuine connection with somebody in front of you, where you can actually place your hands on them and physically be connected to them. Yes. Yeah, it's like that judo tenant, mutual benefit, right? You and I are training together, I love Frank, you know, Frank from Exuberant Animal, he has a great yes. term, uh, cooperative challenge. Frank is, fan yeah, Frank is fantastic. He's, I actually interviewed him on a previous episode. It's, I think it's in the first 10. Um, so I met Frank, geez, I want to say oh, 15 years ago, maybe longer before that. And I came into contact with Frank's work be before anybody even knew about his work, really. And I brought him out to South Africa and I did his first exuberant animal certification. And I think he has a lot to teach us about what we need to do to reconnect with ourselves and go back to a sense of meaning. 
Yes. He has a great, he's, you know, he's like a, I, I ran into his work in 1999. He was going by the name of Frank Rivers by then. He actually had a pseudonym on, on Amazon, right? Uh, his first book called Way of the Owl, which is an incredible book for the martial artist. But he, he's loaded with all these beautiful phrases like be a good animal, mm. be a good animal, right? That's it. Be a good animal. Walk, walk to the corner store, swim, play with your children, play with your neighbor, right? Eat real food, mostly plants, not too much. So being, being part of you know, that idea of being a good animal is a play-based approach. So speak to, speak to, to me about your kind of approach to, to play and why do you think it's important? I think it's huge because uh, are you familiar with this author, Alfred North Whitehead? Have you ever heard this gentleman? Yes. Frank actually wrote about him. This is how I got turned on to him. He speaks about this thing called romance. And he has a three, three, it's an undulating type of approach, right? So it's romance, precision, and play. He calls it romance, precision, and then generalization. And uh, he, he has this quote, the organism will not absorb the fruits of its labor unless it's romantically inclined to do so. So his, his phrase romance is a little, we, we think about lovers and stuff like that. But I mean, I remember the first time, uh, I watched Hoist Gracie in the UFC. I had a romantic vision. I was like, oh my God, that is so lovely. That guy just shoots in and gets a takedown like that. You have to fall in love with things. And the way that we fall in love with things is we play with them first, right? We approach it as a, as a, as a child would approach playing in mud or, or, or discovering a salamander we have to fall in love with what we're doing first so we have to spark those those fires that curiosity and then once we have that curiosity i actually use the alfred north whitehead's approach i start all of my sessions with play and uh i mean there's many different forms of play we can talk about practical play and primal play and all of those things but i start all of my sessions with play so the mood stays light and, and and joyful. And then the second part of the session is precision. Say if we played through with some squat variations, right? We just played, we played with some medicine balls, we played with some, you know, martial arts postures, some maybe some rubber bands, yoga blocks. Then we introduce the precision. And this is this is how you would squat more precisely. This is how you would squat if you wanted to squat 495. And then once we've spent time in that precision stage, we go back to a more playful stage, the third stage. And because we've spent time in that precision stage, we can actually go into a deeper play stage because we have, we have a better understanding through the art of practice with what we're trying to accomplish. So in soccer, I think they use enthuse, instruct, play enthuse instruct play i use play precision play same same type of idea i think the thing that's beautiful for me about play and this is the part i, I guess that a lot of people have a bit of a hard time getting into it is that it's the complete antithesis of what society says you should be doing in order to be successful at something right yes it, it's such a great study this topic because I'm sure you've heard of Montessori, correct? Yep. Google creators, Montessori kids. Bezos, Montessori kid. And their early educations in most Montessori schools, play-based. 
45 minutes of instruction, 15 minutes, go outside and play in the mud, right? Come back in another 30, 45 minutes of instruction, go outside, put on, put on your galoshes and go play in the mud. It's very play-based. It's crazy that we think play is the opposite of success, right? Steve Jobs, playful. So that it seems that in there, there's kind of this, this um, contradiction, right? In, in the sense that what we would say, assume is often successful people, at least how that's defined in the Western world, they've had access to things like play. You, you talked about Montessori. Then we have people that we see as less successful, the working class, so to speak, have no access to that. Is that by accident or is that by design? That's the question we have to ask ourselves, right? This is a great question, yes. And I think if you were a conspiracy, conspiracy, right? If you're conspiracy theorist. Thank you. Yes. I think you would say it was by design. I'm sure you've seen that whole thing with that, uh, you know, we talk about do schools kill creativity and schools are designed under that industrial uh, model, right? Like the bell rings at 830, you go to work, you sit down, you do your work right? And it's purposely designed to kill creativity. I have three sons. I still have three sons in the school system. They're not taught free thought. They're not taught how to learn. They don't learn how to learn. They're, they're literally taught, sit down. Uh, this is what the material you need to know. Don't think outside of the box and then get tested on Friday. Well, I mean, you know, conspiracy theory or not, I would be in the camp that I say that it's designed. Me too. <laughs> so- <laughs> And again, that's one way of controlling the masses because there is a fear if everybody suddenly became self-creative. If everybody became self-creative and were able to play, as we've been describing, then most of the problems that we face in the world would have been solved. And it wouldn't be just in the hands of a few. And it wouldn't be in the hands of these global corporations that are now stronger and more powerful than most countries. And so there's a power play here. There's an ego situation going on. It's about hoarding. It's about control. And that is something that I think, again, our work is helping in some respect, helping people break free from that. You know, I always try to give people, because I, I, I run into pushback sometimes when people think you should be doing other things other than play. And I always use this as, as an example, when you get a new piece of software or you get something new at home that you don't quite understand, we say, oh, let me play around with this, right? Let me toy around with this. Let me toy around with this new technique. Let me toy around with this idea for a little bit. So instinctually, we know, right? We use the word play in our vocabulary. We use the word toy in our vocabulary. We know that they're one, that's the way that we learn right? We know that. But for some reason, we think that we have to put our nose to the grindstone to, to have, I always use other animal, animals ex, as examples as well. Like I have shepherds, you know what, the, you know how they learn how to kill the rabbits? By playing with one another, right? They sneak up on one another. Yeah. They stalk one another. Bam! They're not, they're not doing burpees, you know? They're just not, they're being playful with one another. They know how to go for one another's necks. They know how to sweep, literally sweep one another, right? And they all, they, the mom teaches the kids how to do that. And they roughhouse with one another. It's jujitsu. It's 
in the canine world. I think also the, this idea of play and what it does, at least the way that I see it, is that it's an embodied experience rather than just being something that's happening between your ears. And most of our educational system is all about what happens from the neck up. And so we never really truly embody what we're learning. And unless you are able to embody what you, you learn, then you will never have, as we started off our discussion, that ability to be physically prepared. And I mean, yeah. physically prepared is just your ability to be able to successfully navigate your environment, whatever that may be, right? And so most people can't even do that. And you used a really good example of parents two blocks away, which they could quite easily walk and would be really good, not only for their health, but just connecting with the neighborhood, meeting people, and also genuinely connecting with their kids, a moment of time where they could just be without technology, they'd rather drive. Right? And so again, not fully understanding, but I think again, not to harp on about conspiracy theories, I think the design is on purpose to take away play so that we never really fully realize our, our potential. I agree. I'm, I'm totally with you. Another reason why I, I like to stress play. Have you ever heard of this term state specific learning? Hmm. So the state and I always it's weird because I'm a U.S. Marine. So I, under, I understand this and I'm sure we all do in our own day to day lives. State specific learning is the emotional state that you are in or were in while you learned the material gets retained along with the material. So if you're in a stressful state, a negatively stressful state, while you're learning math, while you're learning whatever, M16s, you will retain that negative stress association with that material, right? So when you use a more play-based approach, you put everybody in a joyful state, a happy state, it's it's more likely that in the future they will approach that again in a joyful state because it will be absorbed along with the material. That's a very important point. I mean, and most people don't know this is that the same area of the brain that's responsible for learning is also responsible for movement. So we can make the argument that movement and learning are very, you know, very connected, closely connected. And what do we do to kids? What do we do to kids? We put them in school. We make them sit behind a table and tell them not to move. And if they do, then they have ADHD, right? Right. Yes. I always use this as an example too. That, so do you know, do you speak any Spanish or Portuguese? Oh, no, no, not a lot. That's no. your area. You in the States, that's your area. of expertise. That's my area. So the word to learn in Spanish and Portuguese, I'm sure it's Italian and French is probably very similar. It's aprender, aprender. Now, what is our English word that sounds just like that? Apprentice. Apprentice, yeah. It's a literally an apprentice. The word means to take by hand, like apprehend, like, right? So if you're apprehended by the police, it means they, they've taken you by hand. But the Latin words for to learn is literally apprehend. And with, exactly like you said, sir, we, we have taken away this, the embodied approach to learning. We make the kids sit down. Montessori did a great study of this as well. She had kids that... Uh, it was, it was uh, clay. The kids that played with clay during math and English absorbed the math and English better than the kids that did not play with clay during the math and English because it was tactile. They were absorbing it. They were aprendendo. They were learning the material much more with their hands. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I think the other thing also, which we haven't talked about, when you allow people to play, what you're also allowing them to do is experience making mistakes. They're, they're allowed to fail. And failure isn't failure as in that's the end. It's just an opportunity to play the game again, right? It's not that, okay, I failed, so now that's the end of it. And that's, again, how we often do most of the things that we do in life, right? It's like they're losers and winners, and if you kind of just make it black and white, then people are never going to want to move into a space and really stretch themselves and become more if they feel that the consequence is too high. And so on, on the mat in jiu-jitsu, we can set up the environment in such a beautiful way that even when somebody is, quote unquote, not winning the game, so to speak, it doesn't really matter because then you can talk about how every position is workable. So even though you're on the bottom and you're not in the best favorable position, it's a workable position, right? So play allows that opportunity to, to, to fail and then to learn from failure in a way that will make you more creative and adaptable later on. Yes, exactly. I agree. It's also, have you ever seen this study that the, the, it was in the US? For 12 years, they studied serial killers. And serial killers did not have rough and tumble play. They never learned the boundaries of physicality growing up. And I think that's huge because what would have happened if these kids were just exposed to, you know, jujitsu, judo, rugby, Australian rules, football, just rough and tumble stuff where we learned limitations, where we learned that uh, that improv, oh, I just hurt Rodney. Maybe I don't want to hurt Rodney, right? So I applied too much force. Maybe I apply less force ne next time, right? So it was a, tw a study over 12 years. Uh, they never had rough and tumble play. Yeah, I, I could see that. That makes sense to me. I think one of the things that was very important as a father with my boys is that I introduced them to rough and tumble play. And exactly as you said, what it did was it taught them boundaries about what's actually acceptable in a game and what's not acceptable. And if you're going to do this, then we're not going to play anymore, right? And if you want to continue the play, then you have to, you have to abide by some kind of rules. It's not rules set out to diminish the game, but actually rules to continue to play the game so that we can continue to play without boundaries. And I think that's very important. That's very much missing. And we see definitely globally and in the Western world, this kind of the frowning upon any type of rough and tumble play, because as men, we have been positioned now as just being highly aggressive. And that's the only thing that motivates us. And if you're going to play with young boys, then you're ultimately going to make them more aggressive later on. And if that study is correct, it shows the complete opposite, even though it's just one study. But in my, my experience is that oftentimes men that struggle as adults were oftentimes those that didn't have that experience of being able to be in a rough and tumble kind of sporting environment, right? And, but even there, I want to say that with a caveat, because I'm not a fan. This is just my personal philosophy. I don't like competition. I've never liked competition. I think that made me very odd as a kid and what made me as an outsider. I love playing the game, any game for that matter. I can play, play anything, but I don't like winning or losing. I don't see what the point of that is. I like to just play the game for playing it. And I, and I found that once I, at least in my jujitsu experience, when I stopped worrying about winning or losing and just being able to play it as it arises and just have fun with wherever I find myself and there's no good or bad place, there's just every place is workable. 
I found that there was a profound shift, not only in my own, in my game, I got better paradoxically, but at the same time, I became more centered and calm in everyday life. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I'm not competitive at all. And uh, I was never drawn toward competitive sports, football, baseball, basketball. I was a, a BMX kid. I always liked that uh, artistic. It, it always struck me. I always trained, though. I always trained with the BMX. We always lifted weights and we always trained, right? But I, that's why I really love Frank's term. It's a cooperative challenge. I challenge you. You challenge me. It's cooperative. But we're not competing with one another. I'm there. And like, I love jujitsu. I know you love jujitsu, but I think the philosophy of jujitsu could use a lot much more uh, development like judo. I think we should take the tenets of judo and I wish they were applied to the world of Brazilian jujitsu a little bit more, but that whole thing, mutual benefit, mutual benefit. How many gyms have you gone to where the guy just smashes you because he's getting ready for a competition? Well, thanks, man. I got to go to work the next day with a black eye and a bloody lip. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think I think part of the problem is also is that it came from you know the people that made it very popular. You know, you know the whole yes. Brazilian jiu-jitsu, yes, kind of approach, very machismo kind of mindset, and that kind of situated itself and embedded itself within the experience. And then are we then you know, it's it's not it's not far from there to kind of make the realization that that's how it's going to be experienced on the mat, right? And so when I came when I came into jiu-jitsu which was really in the early days. I mean, I started roughly around well, 96. So that wasn't a, that long after the first UFC. I mean, it really was just uh, the mat was a place of whoever was the toughest, right? And if you were willing to put it all on there, regardless of the outcome, then, then that's it. You, you kind of, you know, everybody respected you. But in the long run of doing that, there's been massive um, health consequences, like I mentioned earlier, which if I could go back, I would be doing a very different thing. But as I started realizing that that's not how I wanted to experience the art and the game, and I wanted to play it a different way, even though it was contrary to a lot of the hyper-competitive schools, I found that my jiu-jitsu improved and my love for it you know, became stronger because there was a time, I can remember for the first decade of jiu-jitsu, I hated everything about it. Like I hated it. I did it only because I felt like a, I had to do it as a martial artist and somebody who was in essence, in a place where I had to learn how to protect myself. So I just pushed through. But, you know, I've gained so much more from playing and being in that playful state where winning is not the, the, you know, the point of the game, right? It's the experience and what it brings to you. My, my example of that would be this. If I'm pissed off and angry and I step on the mat and I come off the mat calm and focused, then it's done something for me, Right. If I go onto the mat pissed off and angry and come off the mat even more pissed off and angry, then that's a negative experience because it goes back to what you said. I'm now priming what I'm doing on the mat, that experience, with the emotions that I'm feeling, which then is just going to amplify in the rest of my life. And I think that's where a lot of people go wrong is they don't realize that in every experience, jujitsu is no different. How you show up on the mat is how you're going to show up in life. Yes. You know, Patabi Joyce, the yogi, his son said, I don't judge the quality of my yoga practice by the moves that I can do. I judge the quality of my yoga practice by how well I treat my wife and how well I treat my children. I was like, damn, that's deep and that's good, right? Yeah, that's very profound. Yeah, Jason, it's, it's gone by really fast. So as we come to the end of the episode, 
leave us with some words of wisdom. So for our listeners, what would you want them to take away from our discussion today? Uh, you know, I'm going to steal words from Henry, uh, here on Gracie. Keep it playful. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.